0: good to see you all again. Um, yeah, so we just, we keep pressing on in James, in the book of James, and um, I think today's, today's message is going to be, you know, re- relatively simple. There's going to be a little complex complexity towards the end, but Craig is going to clean that all up next week <laughs> when we talk about justification and debates of, where'd he go? He'll, he'll be back, but, but yeah, so I'm, I am like... I'm going to be up front again next, uh, next Sunday when, when he uh, talks about this, this sort of, it was a controversial passage during the Reformation, uh, this latter half of James chapter 2, but we're going to focus on a, a part that was not um, very, uh, very controversial, uh, but very very helpful, readily helpful. But if you will, let's pray together. Lord God, we just pray that you would open our hearts, speak through us, Lord, uh, or speak to us, rather, and uh, we pray that as we just hear from your word, Lord, you would help us to pick things up, we would internalize them, Lord, and they would uh, be fuel, Lord, for the day, for the week, and just change us, Lord, as we, as we come to your word humbly, doing our best to understand it. It is in Christ's name we pray, Amen. So, um, I don't know what all of you thought about childhood. I think if, if someone were to say, would you go back and be a kid again, I would say no. I was kind of an angsty kid, pretty angsty, more so than I am now. But here's some reasons I would reject being a kid again. You don't know how anything works. You're at the mercy of people. It's much harder to control your emotions, and then there's the resultant, uh, the resultant cruelty of that is painful, you know, fighting with siblings and such. And then, like, I was walking around uh, uh, Forest Hill Central, like, before the football game, and you can see all these kids, like, walking around, they're, they're trying to figure out who they are, and the whole socialization thing, you know what I'm talking about? It's it's, it's hard. It's hard. But I have popular kids up here. It's it's a weird thing, and I, I probably when you think back to to uh, elementary school, middle school, whatever, you probably have a different definition of popular kids. But it was weird by by elementary school, by first grade, I understood the concept, at least the concept in my neck of the woods of popular kids, and as I grew. I learned that, what an odd term, because in many cases, the so-called popular kids actually weren't well-liked. They weren't actually popular in, in the sense that, like, everyone loved it. They were interesting. They were sort of a little bit of drama to watch, and they could be, you know, they, they, could, they could be mean, but the populace honored them. They like to be around them, get attention from them. You don't cross them. And sometimes you just wanted something from them. But I, I saw the result. Like, people would abandon their friends and things on account of the, you know, so-called popular kids. Now, when I got older, the, the, the idea sort of morphed. Then you started, like, you started running into kids who were a little bit more mature. They were... Um, you know, self-assured, very kind, respectful, and th- they took on that, that uh, nomenclature as well. But anyway, why this story? Why, why this account? You know, I think we learn to make distinctions early, and they are not always good. We learn the, value syst- the worldly value systems very early on, and it sticks with us. And I think this has the potential to creep into our lives, into our church lives even. And we don't outgrow childish ways easily. We just don't. And the churches to which James was writing had evidence of succumbing to the worldly value system. So they had their own, you know, so-called popular kid problem. So we're going to look at James chapter 2 1 through 13, so if you have your Bible or your phone, open it up, and we will uh, read through it, as I often do, and then we'll read through it again for all of those with ADHD. So, verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but, f- but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, as usual, here are the three questions that are going to help us guide or help, help us navigate this text. First, what is so bad about partiality? What is it? Why is it bad? Second, what are all these different laws mentioned in the text? I mean, that, that bears at least looking into a little bit. That's a recurrent theme or a recurrent question from last week. You know. And then finally, what is this last verse about? And I'm not going to say a tremendous amount On that last question, I think um, Craig will probably attend to that next week. But that last verse, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's a hairy little uh, verse there, and one that um, commentators go back and forth on quite a bit. But let's tend to the first question. What is so bad about partiality? And this literally means receiving the face. And this is translated as favoritism or partiality. And a deeper sense of it, according to Douglas Moo, a New Testament scholar, he says that this term has the idea of to make judgments and distinctions based on external considerations such as physical appearance, social status, or race. So so what's going on in the church that prompted this? Did James see this were these were these reports that were making their way to James? Um, were they recurrent i 'm guessing they were they were recurrent, and that there was some favoritism going to those who were dressed well and seemed to be people of social status and the the rich person would come in they 're very clearly they're nicely dressed and they get preferential seating so I mean, these people are interesting, though. They worked hard. They somehow won the game, right? They're, 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 winning, the, they're winning the social and economic game. I mean, shouldn't we, shouldn't we give them a little better seating, right? So what's the problem about showing partiality? There's at least two reasons um, from Scripture that we can say showing partiality is bad. Uh, the first reason is that, G, uh, that God is just, he's impartial. And he says to be impartial. It's just, that, it's just that simple. This is what he told you to do. So for instance, Romans 2.11. For God shows no partiality. Ephesians 6, nine: Masters, do the same thing to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Even in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, 15. You shall do do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So God just says, this is how I am, be like me. But we can also also, um, infer from the very idea of the image of God... That we should, we should not be, that we should not be partial. Uh, verse 4 says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? One of the very first things we learn about human beings in Genesis chapter 1 is that men and women are created in the image of God. They are created in God's image. That's the one thing we know. Even post-fall people, post-fall, arguably pre-regenerate, pre-saved people, they still have the image of God. Um, actually, James 3, 8-10 talks about people who are made in the images of God. It does not say brothers and sisters who are made in the image of God. It says people who are made in the image of God. So the very idea of image of God... Again, it's, Scripture never, never defines this straight away. It's never explicit. It actually requires quite a bit of theological thinking and it, looking at Scripture and inferring what this definition, but whatever the case is, the image of God is something that all human beings have. And we would say, if it has the image of God, all human beings are, um, are due respect and dignity by virtue of their humanity. Uh, terms like, you know, calling person trash or something like that is horrible. Like, this is... That's an image of God, you know? No matter what their moral standing is. I also... Th- this, is, this is interesting. This is a little bit of an aside. But the image of God is such a powerful, powerful idea. I mean, I think this is... If you're, if you're talking about, you know, obviously, you know, in the areas of um, racism and abortion and, and social issues like that, I mean, this is the image of God. All people have the image of God. All babies have the image of God. Right? Again, what is it exactly? It's hard to say. But we, you know, you have great arguments You know, for anti-abortion through the image of God. You have great arguments for treating people equally for the image of God. It's a powerful, powerful... And I don't know why... I I don't know why outsiders aren't attracted to this idea. It's such such a potent idea. But in the text, there are further points of irrationality here, as well as peculiarities in, in, in partiality. So, one... James is talking about the wrong-headedness of the church in giving preferential treatment to the rich, giving to the the so-called popular kids. This is not to say, so, so God has chosen many poor. James is indicating that God has chosen many poor to be part of his congregation, to be part of his people, Right? Now, this is not to say that he did not also choose rich people as well. But he has is, he is noted that many Christians are poor. Some commentators conjecture the reason some of these are poor is because of their faith. Their faith commitments. People are not buying their goods, buying their services, because they're very staunch in their faith. Um, others, people just, you know, they, they're down on their luck, or who knows? I mean, some... Some, maybe they're just, they don't got their life together. Well, whatever the case is, God has chosen from among the poor many. So why why would you discriminate? But what is more, and I think one of the things that is interesting about this is, James talks about the wrong-headedness of the following. If you are, if one were to discriminate, one were permitted to discriminate wouldn't you probably discriminate against the rich people because these are the ones that at least in James's time are co- this is where this is where they're getting static the people that can really p- cause problems for you they're well to do so wouldn't it, it it's sort of wrong headed to, to if you if again if you were permitted to discriminate you would discriminate against the rich people And that's one of the things that James is calling them out about the wrong-headedness of their actions. So, showing partiality based on external considerations is wrong-headed, offensive to God's images. So, So remember the trials that we discussed in chapter 1? This is a little bit of an application. Now that I'm I'm looking at it, I don't know if it really hits the mark. But how often are the trials that you face actually walking and talking trials? I mean, there's some people that are a little bit harder work, right? There's some people that you get along with really easily, and there's other people that just takes work. Or there's, there's certain people that are just really man they're they're really making your teeth grind at work. Right? I think there's a challenge here to to remember that all people are created in God's image. All of them. We all have people at work that man, man wouldn't life be better if they were just like quit and go away, you know. Or, I hope that Marco guy doesn't go up there next Sunday, you know. But I have this, I have this um, quote from C.S. Lewis. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of an armchair C.S. Lewis scholar. I've never written anything on him. I just find him interesting. Again, I don't agree with everything he says. But he, he, he has this excerpt that I think really speaks to the image of God. He writes this in The Weight of Glory. He says this, It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. So I think he's saying, when we are, when we are in glory in our resurrected bodies, you would be like dumbfounded. Like, is this a god? Like, lowercase g, God? There would be something so wonderful about being in the presence of a resurrected body that you would be tempted to worship it, to worship it. So to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet if at all only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them, that we should c- conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors so we have we do have a role in helping one another now I do think maybe he doesn't talk enough about the Holy Spirit's interaction there but it is, it is interesting I think at least in terms of we need to treat one another with dignity um, does anyone like networking in here? Networking. You know what I mean by networking? I just get weirded out a little bit by networking. I go to these conferences, like I have a badge that says, Jonathan S. Marco, Cornerstone University. When I get in the elevator with someone, like I try to be like, I'm going to talk to you, and if, if we hit it off, great. But people, they do this. They're looking, is he worth, is he worthwhile talking to? So I started putting a a sign that said, my eyes are up here, buddy. It got a laugh like half the time. But, but I don't know, it just, you gotta do it, but like, I should move on, I should move on. (sighs) Did did someone turn that heat up in here? It's getting like really hot. Let's move on. So let's go to the next question. What are all these different laws? What are all these different laws? So ver- verse eight through um, 11, twelve. If you real so, if, every time you hear law, I don't know, clap. You want, you want to do some audience participation? Like clap, just like every time you hear law. Like not during, but like right after, like a gunshot. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, some of you guys are off, that was, I don't know if we, yeah. <laughs> that's right, everyone has different coordination levels in here, amen, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as you su- yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as who... (laughs) It's messing me up. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Yeah. Don't do this next service. Okay. All right. So we have at least three different laws spoken of here. We're done reading. Who is that? I'll watch the footage after this. I'll figure out who you are. Messing with me. So there's the royal law, verse eight, connected with you shall love you. This is just getting worse. So there's the royal law in verse eight, connected with you shall love your neighbors yourself. Then there's just the law, the unqualified law. Uh, perhaps it's the perhaps it's a broader understanding. And then there's the law of liberty. Seems like yet a different set of laws or law. Here, here's, my, here's my theory, or, and, and other commentators have, I think, partly agreed with me, is that they might be all speaking about the same thing. They're all talking about the same noun. It's just looking at it from different angles and from different aspects. So law, just unqualified law. When we show partiality, we are breaking the law. But this law is God's moral will that is the Old Testament in James' day, but fulfilled through Christ and looked looked at and seen through the lens of Christ. You know, we don't have to literally um, maintain the ceremonial aspects of the law because Jesus Christ accomplished those. I mean, we don't sacrifice animals anymore. I mean, that's not part of our worship we had the one sacrifice that's done. It is finished. No more killing lambs and goats and rams and bulls. It's done. Those all pointed to Christ. Even, I actually, I read this one book. Um, I can't remember what it is. But this, this author sort of geniusly wove every single sacrifice, even, even like wave offerings and, you know, drink offerings and uh, all those. He tied them all pointing to Christ. All the ceremonial aspects point to Christ. Um, so the law might be distinguished into various precepts, but it is an indivisible whole. When you fail it in one aspect, you fail, you fail the whole thing. Now the royal law, maybe it's the same law, but it's talking about, well, we are God's, we are God's royal subjects in his kingdom. Right? Which I mean, we should have buy-in on this. I mean, this is our kingdom under, under, under Christ. We should have buy-in here. So why do they call it the law of liberty? Well, I think arguably it's the law of liberty because this is what we, it no longer condemns us. It now shows us actually how we can freely obey God out of gratitude. And so maybe he calls it the law of liberty, because now I can, of my own free will, obey it. It's, it's no longer condemning me, but I obey it. So in a little bit of a summary, what James is saying in these verses is that showing partiality is law-breaking. It makes you a lawbreaker. Not being partial, but treating others as you would want to be treated comes from a gracious spirit. This contentment, this shalom. You understand what God has done for you. So, so far, showing partiality based on external considerations is wrong-headed, offensive to God's images and his law. Or, positively stated, being impartial but not indifferent. Being impartial is good and respects God's image and law. So, I think one of the things that I want to just talk about right now, just briefly, and maybe this is is a bit of a nerd corner thing, but I think it's highly useful, is um, actually... In the medieval period, in the, in the Reformation, post-Reformation period, they would often talk about the three uses of the law. A pedagogical use, like the law being your pedagogue, your, your, the slave that watches over you. Uh, the pedagogical use of the law is, it's just convicting. It shows you how stern it is, and how unworthy you are, and how bad you fail at it time and time again, it's called pedagogical because it pushes you to the feet of to the foot of the cross. But for Adam and Eve, we would say pre fall, and for us now post conversion, that ha- the, the use of the law that is probably the, the, the number one use, most important use for us, is the law, you know, sands its ceremonial aspect and civil aspect is that this is our gracious response to God. Like, this is how we get to honor God. You know, if you're looking for God's will for your life, what's well, in the Bible, it tells you how, how you should act. The attitudes you should have. And this is, this is helpful. This is our gracious response for the great salvation we, ha- we have. The third use of the law that um, theologians would talk about is just the civil use. This is often caught up with the so-called natural law. We would often say that the moral law that we have, the Ten Commandments, for instance, this is gracious. And even, even the unredeemed, even the unredeemed, if they abide by the Ten Commandments and God's morality, life will, go, life will be easier for them. There will be better technological advances. They will have a, com- a more comfortable life. But that is neither here nor there. But in, sh- in short, we should work at and naturally see a desire of obedience to God's law as a r- gracious response to his love. Okay, last but not least, this text. This text is, again, I think um, Craig is going to probably, he's going to get, yeah, I maybe should have just had him do thir- verse 13, but here we are. Here's, here's the verse. Here's the two, two uh, sentences. Of Verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, the problematic thing about this verse is it seems like it could very easily be read as some sort of promulgating some sort of works righteousness. Like you only get mercy if you give mercy. If you don't do this good to others... You won't have this good done to you. I mean, so it starts. It's like, uh, man, what is it? What is that saying? You know, and I mean, the options for the judgment. When they say judgment, are they talking about horizontal? Are they talking about vertical? Are they talking about temporal? Are they talking about eternal? Are they talking about individual? Are they talking about corporate? Now, now, I'm more confused, and you all are confused. What is this judgment? So, some some would read this. The anti-Reformation reading would be that, yeah, if you don't show mercy, you will not be shown mercy. Again, like, how is that not works righteousness? Now, supposing that Paul has been very clear about justification through faith alone... And I would argue that he is very clear about it. Let me read to you Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I think this goes back to that little adage I gave last week. You are saved by faith alone, but if faith is alone, it is not true faith. The idea that one of the marks of a believer, of a true believer, is, is not only right-knowing, but it's also right-doing. It's actually your, it's actually your, your, your justified status and the, and the work that God's doing in your life that results in the good works. Not the good works that result in your salvation or justification. Does that, that make sense? That's going to be, that's be um, one of the main themes I guarantee for, for next week. But what of these two sentences? How do you read them? So first sentence... I'm going to suggest that it's the natural evidence of one's true salvation is being merciful or increasingly merciful. It is evidence of the Holy Spirit. For judgment is without mercy to, the, to one who has shown no mercy. That is for the unredeemed, who have no, no one covering them, no blood, no shed blood of Christ is covering them, at least at present. Their lack of mercy is damnable. The second sentence, mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, this is is one that commentators go back and forth on. One option, it could point to the fact that there is a judgment. Now, Christians are divided, evangelical Christians are divided over what our so-called judgment would look like. Um, Some would say that, no, I mean, we're we're only judged on the positives. We will stand in front of God the, the white throne, we will stand in front of the throne. Um, you know, the white throne judgment in Revelation. But that will only be because we will be judged for the good things we've done. Right. Another option is just this. Christ's mercy triumphed over the judgment we would have had. Right. So mercy triumphs over judgment. The mercy here refers to Christ's and the Christ event, and the atonement, and that how that takes away that condemnation that we would have. So, you know, that, that's, that may not be, we are running out of time, so that may not be as clear, but um, that, is, that is a thread, that's actually a heavy thread that we're going to pick up next week. You know, how do you read James? Because James often seems to be advancing this idea of works righteousness. But it is clearly justification through faith alone throughout the rest of the New Testament. But yeah, we'll, we'll focus on that a little bit more. But showing partiality based on external considerations is wrongheaded, offenses to God's images and his law, and is not a fitting response to God's mercy. So, I mean, we can, I think there's plenty of application here. I mean, one of my first go to's is the merciless, uh, this, the parable of the merciless servant, the one who's forgiven of a great, de- of a, a decent debt, or a, a really great debt, and then he finds his fellow servant who owed him a little bit and he's like strangling him. Remember that? It's just not fitting. That's not fitting. And yeah, we do have to have our standards in church, but we, we have to be ready for, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's just all sorts of different people, different, different from your own family, different maybe from what you're used to, different from, you know, your neighborhood, whatever. I mean, there's going to be, um, I, I think Olivia's gift is a great example of this. And this is where, we, you know, we can really um, celebrate that the images of God that are back there at times making noise, you know. But they, we, are, we are loving their images of God and we go to them. That's beautiful. And that's one that's, that's really one thing that's really hard for the world to condemn. So I don't think you have to wear a cowboy hat or put on a false mustache. It's just, just, just a great... Um, And just a wonderful example of uh, people in our church body honoring the image of God in other human beings. We are way out of time. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and maybe Craig will come up, maybe he won't.